point that we're trying to make tonight, the idea that we're trying to look at. We are thankful that you're here. This is a great crowd, one of our better crowds probably on a Sunday night in a while. We're thankful, as we said, to have the teens and, and chaperones back from the retreat. We're just thankful that you are here. You know, we're entering uh, a time and, and still in a time where for the last year and a half or so, uh, the two-year mark, of course, will be here before we know it with the spring, God be willing, um, but where we've been challenged to meet and then been able to meet again, but challenged with, you know, concerns and questions on what we need to do, and I think and hope that uh, hopefully one thing that doesn't kind of pass away is our desire to meet as much as we can, as often as we can. We realize that we need to make the best choice for our own selves and our health, but also keep it in mind our spiritual health and our our church family and the way that we can be an encouragement to others. So we're just thankful every time that you are here and appreciate, especially on a Sunday evening, the chance that we get to encourage one another with studying God's Word. As has been the case for this year and really for most of the time that I've been with you now for several years, I do enjoy using Sunday nights for some lessons that are a little different than Sunday morning. As we're coming up on the end of the year, my goal usually is by the end of the year at some point, maybe in November, maybe in December, to try to spend almost a whole day or a couple of days planning out sermons for the next year. And we will continue, of course, as we have been doing for some time now on Sunday nights, taking a look at our Book of the Month Club, where we just keep working our way through the Bible and our one-word study. But that leaves at least two and sometimes three Sunday nights open for any number of things. Uh, always take your suggestions, always take your questions. Don't usually accept enough questions to kind of do one particular question and answer each month, but sometimes can work those into sermon themselves or other things. Uh, one of the things that came up this morning in Jerry's class, and uh, several of you have mentioned, uh, I think that has come up and the question someone has or several people have is the idea of angels or angels and demons, and I've been trying to decide if that should be a whole class or, you know, a one lesson or a series of lessons, and that's something I've kind of penciled in maybe by the end of the year to look at on a Sunday night, maybe two Sunday nights or so to try to cover that topic as best we can and answer some of the questions that, that people have. But I do appreciate this opportunity uh, to consider maybe some deeper things um, that we can really learn from. And the question that's going to come up tonight, if you have your bulletin in front of you or the outline, is not so much a question, but it's the idea of the heresy of impossible apostasy. Now, there's sermons, lots of preachers have sermons that are titled The Impossibility of Apostasy or kind of talking about that idea. As I mentioned as we began our sermon this morning, sort of previewing tonight, the way we usually talk about it is the idea of once saved, always saved. Now, let me say this off the bat. As I've been thinking about something maybe for next Sunday night, with, uh, when we talked about biblical illiteracy a few Sunday nights ago, and we talked about this idea that there are great things uh, that people sometimes use as quotes. Uh, things that almost sound like Proverbs, and we talked about Proverbs very recently, but they're not always found in the Bible. My, my children have continued to give me a hard time about quoting Second Grandma, you know, that we did on that night that we talked about biblical literacy, that cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, it's not in the Bible, but it's in Second Grandma. Well, there's a lot of things that are very, very close to that, and here's what I want to begin with tonight. Most of those things, a lot of those things, are very easy to believe. And very easy, they make us feel at ease. Maybe at the top of that list is the idea of once saved, always saved. I mean, right? Most of us are not, are not lazy people, per se, but we do like maybe an easier route. I mean, we don't always want to make our lives tough. We sometimes like to do the easier thing. And so when it comes to certain doctrines or phrases or ideas, if someone walks up to you or someone stands in a pulpit 
or someone stands on TV and you can watch them from the comfort of your own home and they say that once you are saved, there's nothing you can do, don't worry about it, you're always saved. Most of us, myself included, would probably like to say, oh, that's easy, I kind of like that idea, I don't have to do much else, I can just kick back and take it easy. But unfortunately, that's not the case. It's not actually found in the Bible, and that's what we want to talk about tonight. But as we begin, and you think for just a moment of whether you know anyone that believes this, some people wouldn't admit to it. Some people might not even understand the full concept and, and understand what the uh, ramifications are of what they're saying. But there are people, including at least one name here that I want to share with you to begin, that do promote these kinds of ideas. Now, I want to give full credit, as I, I usually try to do for anything that I find, and I mentioned to you this morning that this is an article that was shared with me by uh, Brother Jerry Corbin as he uh, receives the Christian Courier at their house, and I always share with you that you can find their website. Uh, you don't necessarily have to get their mailing, but the thechristiancourier.com was run for many, many years by Brother Wayne Jackson, who's a great uh, scholar. We have his New Testament commentary in our library, and it's a great resource if you're ever looking for something. I mean... Absolutely. If you hear me say something and you think, well, I don't know if that sounds right or not. I'm not sure that's how that goes. Go find a commentary. Go find some other sources to consider and check and see if what we're saying is true according to the Bible. But Brother Wayne Jackson has done a lot of good work and his sons continue on that work as he passed away just a little over a year or so ago and promoting a lot of these articles. And so Jerry had received this at home and shared it with me and it's entitled The Heresy of impossible apostasy. But the article begins by sharing the idea that this is a very uh, difficult uh, or a doctrine that is very corrupt and that a lot of people believe. And he gives at least three examples of some men who probably were well known among some circles and some people in the world who promote it. One is Sam Morris, a Baptist preacher of years gone by who authored a, a tract that was titled, Do a Christian's Sins Damn His Soul? A Baptist preacher of years gone by, a tract, do a Christian's sins damn his soul? And here's the answer to that, or at least part of it. We take the position that a Christian's sins do not damn his soul. The way a Christian lives, what he says, his character, his conduct, or his attitude toward other people have nothing whatever to, whatsoever to do with the salvation of his soul. And he added this, all the sins that a Christian may commit from idolatry to murder will not make his soul any more in any more danger. All the sins that a Christian may commit from idolatry to murder will not make a difference, is ultimately what he's saying. Ben Bogard, who served as a dean of the Missionary Baptist Institute in the early 1900s, who was sort of known as the bulldog of the Baptist debaters back when debating was a little more of a, a public thing that was done. He debated N.B. Hardiman, as we were talking about Free Hardiman this morning. Uh, Brother Hardiman, who was the president of Free Hardiman College for a long time. And one of the propositions in that debate was this, that the Bible teaches that it is possible for a child of God to apostatize so as to be finally lost. And that word, of course, apostasy, apostatize is the idea of falling away. So the proposition was the Bible teaches that it is possible for a child of God to fall away so as to be lost eternally. And Professor Hardiman affirmed this, that that's true, the Bible does teach that, but Bogard denied it. The Bible doesn't teach that a child of God can fall away. And then John MacArthur, a name that is a little more known to us, John MacArthur contends that a child of God cannot fall 
from the grace of God. And he wrote regarding eternal life, it is a done deal, not a goal we work toward. Eternal life is a present possession, not a future hope. Now, what I'd like for us to do in taking from this article, uh, Brother Jackson actually uses 10 different things. You know, I like to read some military books sometimes, and they talk about the idea of overwhelming force, right? And Jerry and I were talking about this, and Jerry mentioned sometimes we think, well, you know, when it comes to something like this, there's probably just one or two things, right? There's just one or two verses you need to know. But it's interesting that an article like this can give you 10 different things. We're not going to look at all 10 in the article for the sake of our time. But we're going to use a little bit of overwhelming force and point out just how many instances there are in the Bible that go against this idea. Number one, the idea of tares. And I've got words for you for eight of the points, and then there are scripture references. And so if you'd like to take notes, there's a perfect place out to the side that maybe you can jot these down and hopefully even look at them later yourself as you hopefully consider this even further. In the parable of the tares in Matthew chapter 13, now I forgot to mention, I, I did mention, I hope you have your Bible, but I'm going to turn with you to all these passages and we're going to consider them together. Matthew chapter 13, in beginning in verse 24, Jesus tells the parable of the tares, the idea of the wheat growing and then someone coming along, an enemy, if you will, coming along and sowing the tares among the wheat. And then the servants and the master having to, decide, having to decide what to do. But Jesus warned that the tares, the bad wheat, would be gathered out of his kingdom and burned at the end of the world. Now, if you turn to Matthew 13, excuse me, it's verses 24 through 30 that the parable is found. But you go down to verses 36 through 43 to find the explanation. In between that, we looked at this chapter not too long ago as we spent several weeks talking about parables, but Jesus gives the explanation later. So it's in verses 41 and 42 that he talks about that they would be burned at the end of the world. Now Jesus has used some language here. He's talked about the idea that the wheat would, or the tares would be gathered out of his kingdom. So since Christ's kingdom is his church, as we read about in, in Matthew chapter 16, that the idea that the kingdom is the church, when Peter makes that great statement in Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, the kingdom is the church or the family of God, it seems to be apparent that these tares, this, this not good wheat, represent apostate children of God who yielded to Satan's influence. Depending on the person you read or the scholar, maybe the commentary you might, there's a couple of possibilities there, but one of those is certainly that the tares are apostate children who have fallen away. They have yielded to Satan's influence. They are no longer faithful, and they are going to be burned at the end of the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, one thing we're going to notice is as you look at this language, as you think about the language that is used, some of it is very obvious. And I think we would agree that to be burned at the end of the world is not what we're looking for. That's not the idea. That should not be our goal. But yet it is, seems to be here that it is, there will be some who are burned at the end of the world who were once a part of the kingdom. Number two, the idea of branches in John chapter 15. In the allegory of John 15, which begins with the true vine, the vine and the branches, Jesus declares that every branch in me that does not continue to bear fruit will be taken away. John 15 and verse number 2. Again, I don't want to treat you like children or, or talk down to you, but sometimes the language is very simple. The branch is a part 
of the true vine, part of the tree, and then it's no longer good. So it's going to be removed. It will be taken away. And indeed, Christ warns here in verse number 6 of John 15 that if a man remains not in me, he will be cast forth and finally burned. Don't want to make it too difficult, but a branch is part of the good tree and it is no longer part of the good tree. Faithful, and we might say then, have fallen away. Number three, let's talk about Simon. Now, this is not Simon Peter in Acts chapter 8. If you know your, your Bible and your history there, in Acts chapter 8, we meet another Simon. We usually refer to him as Simon the Sorcerer. Because in Acts chapter 8, <clears throat> when Simon, excuse me, when Christ, when Christ is preached in Samaria, Simon, who was a person who deceived others with sorcery, he believed the message, verse 13, Acts 8, he believed the message and was immersed, which if you believe Mark 16, 15 and 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Simon was believing and he was immersed, he was baptized, so that would result in his salvation. And he did precisely what the other devout people of Samaria did, as indicated by the term also there in this particular section. Verse 13, Simon also believed and was baptized it cannot be alleged that he was just a pretender it seems like he's going along with everyone else later with a section that's on the screen verses 14 through 25 he sought to bribe the apostles you know this account we've looked at it many times he attempted to bribe the apostles into gaining the power that they had to impart spiritual gifts and of course peter informs him that he was deep in sin. This was a problem, and that such a disposition in verse number 20 would cause him to perish. And as we talk about at the end of almost every single lesson, as we extend heaven's invitation, thankfully Simon repented and asked the apostle to pray for him so that his judgment might not come upon him. He was in danger of falling away, in danger of perishing, but yet he did not have to do that as we think about what we kind of commonly referred to as God's second law of pardon, the ability to repent, as he does, and pray for forgiveness and then continue on faithfully. But Simon believes and is baptized, seems to be saved, does something wrong, sins, doesn't have to be baptized again because he, he was baptized correctly and became a child of God back at the beginning, but yet there's a possibility he could perish. I don't know how somebody could then say that once a person is saved, they're, they're always saved. There's nothing else they can do. Let's think about Christian conscience in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul in this particular passage is cautioning Christians against eating meat that has been previously offered to idols or meat that under the law of Moses was unclean. And the problem here, this if you've ever studied this passage, it's, a, it's kind of a deep thing that you need to consider, the idea of trying to, to help a brother those who would be stronger, those who would be weaker. But we realize that the meat uh, here is, is no longer, that we're no longer under the law of Moses. It's not a problem necessarily to eat that, but some people are struggling, excuse me, are struggling with that. So Paul's cautioning these Christians that when there are people who have this problem or who struggle with this, that if it's going to influence them, and maybe an uninformed or weaker brother, that maybe they should not do that if they involve themselves in that activity, that it might violate their conscience. And notice what a dreadful thing it would be if the weak brother should 
perish. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 11. He says, because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish. A brother perish or be destroyed. And that's a, a reference even maybe to a passage from Romans chapter 14 and verse 15. Romans 14, 15, or be destroyed. Two brothers, brothers, Christians, who maybe need to do something for the sake of another so that they might not be destroyed or perish. Is it possible, as we're about halfway through the points here, is it possible then, according to what we've looked at so far, that it might be that a child of God could do something, and we've not even talked about the reasons why necessarily, but do something then to be deemed as perishing or falling away or no longer worthwhile or any good seems to be the case as we think about these particular passages that we've just looked at so far number next let's go back to acts chapter 8 and let's think about peter as we think about peter standing condemned i'm sorry that's the wrong reference there at the bottom i knew that didn't look right as i threw it up there go to galatians chapter 2 galatians chapter 2. This is what happens when you copy and paste your slides. You've got to be careful. Not Acts chapter 8, Galatians chapter 2. When Peter here in this particular passage, or had been doing, it's, it's talked about how he was um, confronted here by the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 2. Peter violated his own knowledge, and he refused to associate with the Gentiles. And so Paul has to rebuke him. We're, we're reminded of this a lot. We think about the confrontation that it sometimes takes. We've even discussed here in our class on Wednesday night over, it's been a while back now, maybe a month or so ago, as we talked about restoring the airing and helping people who may have turned away. We said that sometimes we need to confront people. Now, it's tough. We need to do it in love. But sometimes we need to be confronted when we are wrong. And so here you think about Peter, and we hold Peter up as being a great man. And you think about Paul, we hold Paul up as being a great man. But there was a problem. Peter was wrong, and so Paul had to rebuke him or withstand him, depending on the version you're looking at in verse number 11, to the face. What does Paul say, though, there at the end of that? <clears throat> because he was to be blamed. Because he stood condemned. Because he was wrong. He's wrong. According to Lightfoot in his commentary, the co condemnation is not the verdict of the bystanders. Sometimes people claim that, as some people claim to try to get around maybe some arguments here. But it's the verdict of the act itself. Because of what Peter had done, Paul needed to withstand him to the face because he stood condemned. Peter, like Simon, Peter like Simon, like these other people that we've talked about or these other ideas, absolutely. And continue on there through that passage, though, and notice down in verse number 14, had the apostle Peter died in that state of condemnation, he stood condemned, he's wrong. Had he died in that state, what would have been his fate, according to verse number 14, as he was at that time one who walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel? You see, one thing that we do, I already mentioned the idea of ease. We like things that are easy, that sound good. They make us feel better to think that once we're saved, we're always saved. Or we like things that don't always condemn other people around us. We don't like to do that sometimes. But if I were to wipe the slate clean, let's take the names away. Let, let's not even know the situation. But if I tell you here is someone, anybody, who is a, a child of the light, 
a person who is a child of God, and then I go over here, and according to verse number 14, I tell you that I've got somebody who's not walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, we would not have trouble in that case determining who was right and who was wrong, who would be on the path to heaven or who might be standing in danger of condemnation. Now, what we do is we put names and situations, and we say, well, you know, that's my loved one that's not doing what's right, and it's very hard. And I got that. I got it, okay, because I, I got family, too, that's not doing what's right. But if we just, just look at the situations and assess, somebody who's not walking uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, is standing in danger of condemnation. And in this particular instance, it's Peter. Yes, Peter could even fall away. If he were to stand in that position and Paul confronts him and he says, not me, I don't have a problem, I've not done anything wrong. Who are you to tell me I'm wrong? You can't judge me. And he just continues to, to go through with this and not listen. Yes, even Peter stood condemned for a time. What about being severed from Christ? Stay there in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, Paul warned those in Galatia. He calls them, though, sons of God. He says, you are children of God. Paul warned the children of God that if they continued to defect to the Mosaic regime, right? We think about Hebrews. We're going to get there in just a minute. Everybody's having trouble. Lots of people are having trouble going back to the Mosaic law, to the law of Moses. And he's warning them that if they continue to go back to the law of Moses and they seek justification through that system, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 2, he says Christ would profit them nothing. And indeed, in verse number 4, he warns them, depending on the version, I think this is the English standard that I'm about to read from, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you are fallen away from grace. Galatians 5 and verse 4. Once again, take names off, take situations off. Do you want to be a part of Christ? Do you want to be a child of God? Or do you want to be severed from the body of Christ, from Christ? I don't think we have to answer that. Ask is the answer. We know the answer to that. But it seems that we can, indeed, profit nothing. Christ would profit them nothing, verse 2, and be severed from Christ if we want to be justified by the law. And we could probably insert other things there that separate us and cause us to be severed from Christ. What about Hebrews? I told you we'd get there in just a moment, but Hebrews chapter 2. Really, I, I put two passages up here, but it's the entire book of Hebrews. If, if you know your book of Hebrews, it contains many warnings to children of God against forsaking the faith in view of the eternal cost of such a decision. See, I think sometimes we get caught up in, in what's easy and what seems right, what makes us feel good, and we don't think about the eternal nature of the decisions that we're making. So what he's saying is, don't forsake the faith in view of the eternal things. Don't get so caught up in these earthly things for these, you know, Christian who, Christians who were Jews, don't get so caught up in going back to the law. The law was not going to be able to do it. It had to be Christ. For instance, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, if the Hebrew saints yielded to the corrupt influence of the Judaizers and went back to the law of Moses, it would be evidence, and here's the title of this particular point from verse number 1, chapter 2, verse 1, that they had drifted away from their salvation. I know you boaters, I know you fishermen, most of the time if you're trying to be in one spot, it's not good to drift away. 
The recipients of this letter, even in chapter 3, in verse number 12, were admonished not to develop an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from God. And if you turn there, you notice in verse 12, he says, Beware, brethren. Not just anybody that picks it up. Not just any old person. Beware, brethren. Children of God, do not drift away. Do not develop an evil heart of unbelief and fall away from God. You mean we as Christians can maybe do the right thing for a short period of time or even a long period of time and yet get so caught up in the world and trouble that we fall away from God? We become evil again? Absolutely. With enough time, with enough sin, with enough falling away from God, we can do that. Even in chapter 6, Verses 4 through 6, the writer spoke of those who were once enlightened, once enlightened, who had tasted the heavenly gift and then fell away. And that's the terrible, the terrible thought in verse 6, the terrible passage, the idea that they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. Not only can we fall away and cause problems, not only can we, do we need to be on guard and not fall away, but when we do, we crucify again the Son of God. What a, what a thought, what a concept for us to consider. And then let's think about, from Revelation chapter 2, the idea of removing the candlestick. What a better way to end our Sunday and to end our sermon and our service here with going all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. When Paul writes to those in Ephesus, he says a lot of good things. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, he reminded those saints in Ephesus that they were saved by grace. They're in a right relationship with God. They obeyed God's plan of salvation. We read about that in the book of Acts, those in Ephesus who would become Christians. But in the years that followed, they weakened. Do you ever know anything to have weakened? Anything to have fallen apart after some years of wear and tear? I mean, just existing, right? A lot of things, if you don't care for it, they sort of uh, begin to fall apart, rot away. That happens. They were once saved by grace, are saved by grace, but they had weakened during this time. And in fact, the Lord said that they had fallen, and he warned them there in Revelation chapter 2 that if they did not repent before it is too late and practice their original works, the things they had been doing, he would come in judgment and remove their candlestick out of its place. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 5. The candlestick is a figure of speech. It's, it's an idea here, a concept of their identity as a church. But Christ was threatening to disown them because of the way they were acting. So we come back again and we say, is it possible that a child of God could fall away? Overwhelming use of force. You don't just have to memorize one or two passages, although there are certainly a few that remind us of this concept or that it's not true, it's not biblical. But there's just eight, and I skipped over a couple for the sake of, of time tonight. There's eight there. Overwhelming use of force to help us understand what the Bible actually says. And I'm going to give you a bonus one. And if you like to draw on your notes there or, you know, you're making your notes, take you a little arrow and draw an arrow back up to the AM sermon. What about Judas? We talked about Judas this morning. Judas was one of the original 12 apostles. There's evidence, or there is no evidence, excuse me, we said this, there is no evidence that he was corrupt at the time that he became an apostle. 
In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends them out, it seems that he would be empowered with the ability to perform miracles. We said he probably wasn't the most evil person that you would have ever been around. But at a certain point in time, Luke chapter 22 is one place that it's mentioned or recorded. Luke 22, at a certain point in time, Satan entered into the weak apostle. And ultimately, Judas takes his own life in Matthew chapter 27 that we looked at this morning. And he was designated, according to John, John 17, a son of perdition or a son of destruction. His action was one of iniquity. That's what we read about in Acts chapter 1. And he took his own life. And Luke declares that he fell away and went to his own place. So I ask you again, one more time, even referring back to our lesson this morning with Judas. What do you think about it? How do we feel about this? Because it's kind of interesting when you really just are overwhelmed, even in just about 30 minutes with verse after verse, passage after passage, really understanding the context and seeing that while these types of doctrines make us feel comfortable, if they were true, we could just go share it with the world and come home and kick our feet up and take it easy and say, well, we've, we've done our part. That's it. You know what happened last year? It wouldn't matter if you came to services or not. It's not a big deal. There's nothing you can do right or wrong. But yet here we are. Because I think a lot of you understood this in some form or fashion before tonight. But hopefully it's been encouraging to you as it was for me to, to really look at these things and realize that it's something we must continue to work at. And it's why, even through a pandemic and all the troubles that we face, we have, we have strived to come back, to be here, to be here as safely as we could, so that we can be here and encourage one another. Because it's not enough just to make people wet. It's not even enough to do more than make them wet, but to save their souls by helping them understand what it takes to become a Christian and being baptized for the remission of their sins. But it doesn't stop there, which is why we always have that second slide about remaining faithful, up until the point of death, whether it's a death that involves with you having to stand for your faith. Uh, we don't like to think about it. We talked about it a little bit on Wednesday night, but the idea of the gun against your head, someone asking if you believe in God or they're going to take your life, or whether it's just living this life faithfully until your time comes to an end or the Lord returns. We have to remain faithful. So many passages that encourage us to do that, even with just a few that we put up at the end of our service. Tonight, as we are about to sing this song of invitation, we hope that maybe as you've considered these things, that you have found something that has been encouraging to you. And maybe as you've even considered your life, there's something that you need to make a change. There's some way in which you need to make a change, either by becoming a Christian or coming back to him. You see, it's also not the same, just like we're once saved, always saved, that once we mess up, there's no chance again. Sorry, that was your one shot, you're done. We serve a gracious God. We serve a loving God who realizes that we're going to struggle and that we have to remain faithful. And so he gave us his church. He gave us an opportunity such as this to encourage one another, and we're thankful for that. If you need to come become a Christian or come back to him, we'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.